let's pause music for a second and uh, have a conversation. That's going to kind of set up a little bit of today. Um, a common criticism, complaint, concern, genuine question uh, I sometimes get is, uh, why is there no cross in the barn? How many of you have heard this question asked or wondered this yourself? Okay, it's a very good question. And uh, there, to, to fully play my hand, I have no rebellious cue to causing this to stir commotion. But there is actually a reason. There's actually three reasons. And so I wanted to create a common lexicon with you all. And I'm not saying that if somebody does have a, church, or a cross in their church, that they're bad. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that we here have a couple of reasons uh, for why. So here's the first one. And this one's really important for us in general. And I might make some of you mad when I say this. How do you like that suspense? You ready? This isn't our barn. It's not our barn. We built this for everyone. This is a space for everyone. Which means we, as the owners, as the ones who put in all the work, who paid all the money, who have given all of our time and energy, have to go ahead and remove our ownership so that other people who didn't do any of those things and don't deserve that kind of grace are able to feel like they're still a part of it. So the tactile part is a lot of people meet in here. I don't know if you realize, but there's some weeks where there is somebody in here every single day that's, that's renting the space. Um, it gets used a lot. We generally built a barn so that people could feel like this was their space that we then use for ourselves, for Farmhouse Sabbath, for Sundays, for some of our events, for some of our groups, okay? What, what this means is that generally the setup of this is made so that somebody can walk in here and go, I can use this the way that I think I want to use it. And us knowing it's still gonna be a place for our church to meet all the time. However, if we set it up as if it was our church building, then somebody else would have to walk in here and go, oh, I'm using somebody else's space, and we don't want that, okay? We, we want them to go, they, they made the space for me. That's amazing. And then we can know behind the curtain that we're using this space too, all right? Um, so that one's a little bit difficult, and, and, and there's still room there for us to talk about how to do that, that's not the primary reason why we don't have a cross, but it's one of them. Uh, the one that is, um, that's really important, and I believe you guys talked about this while I was gone, um, which, by the way, I hear you all had a lot of snow. I wouldn't know. It was 75 degrees and sunny where I was. <laughs> Sorry, I had to say at least one thing about that, right? Um, no, you guys kind of talked about this. In the early church, how did you know if somebody was a Christian? How'd you, how would you know if you were in a church? We're going to find out how good of a teacher you were, Amy. By what? 
how would you know if somebody was a Christian, and, which they didn't even call themselves Christians at that point, but that's a side thing. How would you know? You'd look at them, and you'd see the things they were doing and would go, that's the name of Jesus walking in front of me. How do I want people to know that this is a church? They look at you, and they go, this must be the Jesus movement unfolding in our midst. And this is where, if we need a cross as a religious symbol to tell people that we're a church, we're probably not doing a very good job. If people can show up here and go, I know exactly what's happening here because of the way those people live and the way those people treat me, now we're talking about Christianity, okay? The third reason is, do you know when approximately the first cross was put in a church building? You know what year? I'll give it to you if you're within the correct century. Ooh, close. And I, the, you're making a good historical connection of why that might be the case. Close. About 10,000, 11,000. Landon, you have an answer? No, we're not quite to 6,000 A.D. or C.E. yet. We're a little bit off. Um, it took a 1,000 years for the church to put a cross in their buildings. So, and I only say that one to say, because some people have come at me pretty negatively about this, was know your church history before you tell me that we need a cross in here to be a church. Because if the church did it for a 1,000 years, uh, we're actually pretty close to half of history without one. Now, that is to say, if it's familiar and it's a good religious symbol, I'm open to that. But there are reasons why we don't have one. The most important being, I don't want us to only, the only way somebody knows we're a church is because we have a religious symbol. I want you all to be the symbol. I want us to live in a crucified pattern of Christ so that that becomes a reality for everybody else. And I'm going to be playing, who? One more song. Um, yeah. before, before I do this, uh, I want us to say a confession together. And uh, this song might come across, it, well, it should, because our text today is very confrontational to us. And uh, this song is written, it's, it's sort of a prayer. It's also a confession. Um, but this gets difficult because... Uh, the chorus, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, this is my favorite worship song, which means you all probably aren't going to like it. Uh, but um, the chorus is, God, if you can hear me, crash this train. The train being the direction that the church has failed over time and that um, nation states and empires have failed over time. And there's a common theological thought that... Uh, in the 4th century, an emperor named Constantine decided to, for his political power, offer Christians a, a, a high-ranking status in the empire because it was going to bolster his political motive. And a lot of theologians say, we've never recovered from Constantine. The church has never recovered from it when it decided to take power and I still feel that way. A lot of you know that my story is I left the church for a while 
and uh, eventually that was because I had a lot to complain about, about the church. And eventually I said, you know what? Maybe I'll stop complaining and I'll take some responsibility and try to do something. And, and that's what had led me to be appointed here and, and do this with all of you folks. Um, and, and I think it's helpful for us to go, you know what? We've made some errors, y'all. We've made some errors. Let's name them so that we can stop making those errors. That's the role of a confession. Um, and so I'm going to sing this, and I invite you to reflect on that however you, uh, you feel is appropriate. Um, but um, we'll do this confession together. Um, Amy will read the leader part. Is it going to be on the phone? Yeah, yeah. Oh, good, because then I don't need my yeah. glasses. <laughs> and then uh, if you guys could respond where it says community, that would be good. So whenever you're ready, Amy. Okay. We begin by con the confession of these sins, of all the ways our lives and our world are not as they should be, in the presence of God and one another. Most holy and merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not forgiven others as we have been forgiven. We have shut our ears to your call to serve as Christ served us. We have not been true to the mind of Christ. We have grieved your Holy Spirit. We have not been of one body. Of our past unfaithfulness, pride, envy, hypocrisy, and apathy that have infected our lives, we confess to you, have mercy on us, O oh God. Our self-indulgent attitudes and ways, our exploitation and dehumanization of other people, we confess to you. Our negligence in prayer and worship, and our failure to continue the story of our faith that is in us, we confess to you. Our neglect of human need and suffering and our indifference to injustice and cruelty, we confess to you. Our false judgments, our uncharitable thoughts toward our neighbors and our prejudice and contempt toward those who are different from us, we confess to you. our waste and pollution of your creation, and all the ways that we have not treated all creation with your love, our lack of concern for what you have made and called good, and our lack of concern for those who come after us, we confess to you. Restore us, O God, and let your anger depart from us. Make us again like you. Hear us, O God, for your mercy is great. Hope you find what you're looking for when it all comes running down. Hope you find it painted black on your window, the lips of your lover's frown. Cause if it dies in the cold, when the clouds start to roll, is it then that your soul starts to bleed? Have you ever seen the spirit took the life from this place? The men who threw out love built 
we died in the dark Became cold, lost our way Did you pray to your God to come home? Cause it ain't fair to say That these tracks are the same So God, if you can hear me Crash this train So God, if you can hear me Crash this train Now I know to the people been driving this mess we made Still waiting for that empire to fade Get us back to how this should be Cause it smells of deception money We bought to the man Yet it's so easy to distract us with comfort In your despotic hand And ain't hard to see That this world ain't free So God, if you can hear me Crash this train so God, you can hear me crash this train To the mothers and the fathers Done the best they could Just trying to run against this train It ain't so understood As this system goes, it all comes to race. And it ain't hard to tell when the dream ain't real. So, God, if you can hear me, crash this train. So, God, you can hear me, crash this train. Send my So here's what's going to happen is we're going to go to Acts chapter 8 and then next week uh, we'll go back to Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7 and then we'll do the end of chapter 8 after that. Okay, so we're bouncing a little. Fair? How many of you are like we don't care? Just on with it? Great. Okay, so let's just start with Acts, uh, Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 3. That day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. Spoiler alert, Stephen dies. Okay, so that's what you're going to talk about. You're going to see all that next week with uh, chapter 6 and 7. Sorry, I already told you he dies, but you could have read ahead anyways and you would have known that. Um, so what's going on here? Why, why are they in Jerusalem, and why are they scattered to Judea and Samaria? Why are those locations important? Why is that the main thrust that the author wants us to know? These specific places, anybody know? Besides the people who are here at 9 o'clock, you don't get to answer. Ooh, that's really cold. <clears throat> anybody? 
Act, you were here at nine. You were here at nine. You don't get to answer. Okay. Acts chapter one. What happens? Jesus says, "Go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth." So here we are in chapter eight, and where are they still? They're in Jerusalem. How are they doing with that one, huh? The only thing Jesus tells them to do, they don't do it. And they're still in Jerusalem. And it's not until persecution breaks out in Jerusalem that now they go to the places that they were supposed to go from the beginning. Do you see the problem here? No, none of us see the problem there. They were supposed to go, okay, you do get it. You're just all very quiet and... That's fine, that's fine. So here's what I would make of this. This thing we're a part of is naturally expanding. That's why Jesus says, you know, Jerusalem, where we are, and then it's going to expand, Judea and Samaria, and then it's going to expand. It's going to keep expanding to the ends of the earth. This thing that we are a part of is naturally expanding. And if you are doing this truly, then it will keep forcing you further and further out. That's what's happening here. And if you try to stay where you are in a spirit of maintain, keep, hold on to, be static, what do you think is going to happen to you? It will force you out. A lot of the time what we try to do with Jesus is put Jesus in a nice little cage and say, this is good enough. And we want to domesticate the gospel and we want to domesticate the kingdom of God. And you know what will happen to that cage if you do that? It will get blown up because you cannot domesticate this. And it's going to keep expanding further and further and further. Now, what I find interesting about this is it's almost like we could say, do the disciples, the apostles fulfill what Jesus said? Yeah, they technically go to Judea and Samaria, <laughs> except... They didn't go there on their own accord. Their fulfillment of this vision kind of happens by accident. And so we have to look at this for ourselves. And there's one thing about persecution here. I would argue, though I don't know all of your stories all the way through, that none of us in the room are persecuted. The church in Asia, the church in Africa, quite persecuted. Okay, Things aren't going well for them. Things are pretty easy here. And, and uh, the American church has to constantly ask questions of, are we comfortable? And if we are, just be ready. Because this, this thing naturally expands. It'll keep forcing you to continue to go. But one of the best things to do that is opposition. When, when and, I, and this is what Amy kind of got into the last two weeks. When you take on the name of Jesus, and you identify, and you embody that in the world, when you're the cross... Walk, walking amongst us. When that happens, that's good news, but good news is always bad news for other people, especially people who have something to lose by you creating that kind of world that God wants us to create. And you will get opposition. If you're doing it right, you'll get opposition. That doesn't mean that you can just go around making a bunch of people mad and say, like, look how persecuted I am. That's being silly, all right? Uh, there's other words I'd use, uh, children in the room, not that that matters. Anyways, uh, Okay, does that make sense? Opposition will naturally lead to this. It, but, but it's going out anyways. But there's some early Christian uh, theologians who, who use some lines for this. There's one that says, uh, Christian blood is seed. 
Christian blood is seed. So Stephen dies. And what happens? That persecution, that blood being spilt, makes the thing grow. And it gets, it gets bigger. It gets more difficult for them to shut down. And then it keeps happening. And it gets more and more difficult to, to shut down. So the first thing I would say, uh, because by the way, I have four sermons today. So I'm trying to... Um, first thing, the church is best when crushed. The church is best when crushed. And our opposition is fertilizer for transformation. And if we're not crushed, if we're comfortable, if we're content, God will take you to uncomfortable places and will force our hand. So we have to pay attention to, are we getting a little bit too constrained here? Are we domesticating this? And then if we are, just wait, because it's not meant to be done like that. Okay, that that gas will continue to expand until it blows up whatever boxes we put around. Okay, um, go to the next one. So uh, now, now we keep reading about this. This is kind of what happens as a result. Now those who were scattered went from place to place proclaiming the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds with one accord listened eagerly to what was said by Philip, hearing and seeing the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud streaks, came out of many who were possessed, and many others who were paralyzed or lame were cured. So there was great joy in that city. Here's the thing to notice about Philip. He's wandering around, teaching, proclaiming, healing people, and casting out demons. Who does that sound like to you? Jesus. Those are the exact things that Jesus does. Here Philip is. In Acts, he's been forced to Samaria, and what's his response? He embodies Jesus. Like Amy had talked about, he takes on the name. He lives out that name, and we we see it, and it resonates with the Samaritan people. So here's the other thing we got to say. And I can say this because my job here is leader, visionary, that kind of thing. I don't have to sit down and uh, get concerned about all of the details. But as that leader, we have to say, don't be too, don't be too strategic. Don't be too strategic. Just do this right. Just live this out and allow the unforeseen opportunities to unfold and be ready to respond to them. Okay? So first we got opposition and persecution and the natural expanding force of the gospel. And it's going to keep going out and out and we got to pay attention to that. Um, second, don't be too strategic. Okay, so that's the first sermon. Second sermon. So you, go, you all are like, why can't he just do one sermon that fast all the time? <laughs> now a certain man named Simon. Anybody named Simon here? Shoot, this ain't going to be good for your family name. Anyways, it's, a, it's not a surname though. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Simon had previously practiced magic in the city. You can juggle, so that's all right. And amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he was someone great. All of them, from least to greatest, listened to him eagerly, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they listened eagerly to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, who was proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. After being baptized, he stayed constantly with Philip and was amazed when he saw the signs and great miracles that took place. Okay, first problem. The word for magic here in Greek 
doesn't necessarily mean what we think of when we say magic, okay? So I don't think it's a great translation. The problem is, is we don't have a great English word for what's happening, okay? So when it says magic, it's not pulling rabbits out of hats, okay, using the wand kind of thing. That's not what this is against. If you have small children who have the little box with the hat and the magic wand like I do, that's not what the Bible is talking about. Also, this kind of thing is why a lot of people were told they can't watch Harry Potter. <laughs> and some of you are like, that was me. Uh, that's a different kind of magic. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think something more serious is going on here. Because what do we know about Simon? Is that his magic led to him having the ability to have authority amongst everybody. Dude's got power because of the things that he's doing. And the kind of magic that would happen in this culture is the ability to heal or make it look like you healed people, um, being able to predict the future, especially using weather. I'm going to give you an example. And hopefully this will start revealing what they're talking about with magic. Columbus arrived in the Caribbean, in those islands. Okay? At first, the natives are giving them stuff, showing them hospitality. Then they stop. Columbus knows that on a certain day, at a certain time, there's going to be an eclipse. So he goes to the natives and he says, the gods are angry with you. And because of that, they are going to blot out the sun. He says, don't believe me, it's going to happen at this time. They go away, the eclipse happens. What do you do if you're a native and you don't know about like the science of eclipses. You think that Columbus just like prayed to your God and uh, like your God's angry with you. So what do they do? They give him all their stuff, all their stuff. What does Columbus do? He kills them all. That's magic. Okay, that's the kind of magic that we're talking about. All right. Um, this would also have some things to do um, with claiming to have power over death, um, but anything that generally affected the will of the people. And, and you can see why Jesus' followers would kind of be concerned about this because what do they do? Well, they're healing people and they're showing, saying that there's power over death. So you can see where they're trying to go. What we're doing is not magic. What we're doing is divine. It comes from a power that is transcendent, not this guy. So they do take great pains to separate themselves from that. But anything that controlled the destiny of the people anything that was a political and economic force, that's what it's talking about with magic. And I'm asking you now, do some transposing to our culture today, because we have to ask, what does that look like here? But the Bible is ambiguous about a lot of things, right? People can argue about all sorts of things with the Bible. You give me a stance, like you'd say homosexuality, whatever, I can play devil's advocate to anything because it's a story, not an instruction manual, and there's all these different ways you can take stuff, all right? Bible's tricky. One thing that it's consistently against is this kind of magic. And so we do have to take this kind of seriously. Um, so here's my question. Is there anything that uses certain power and knowledge to manipulate and control and take advantage of people? If so, it is in our DNA to oppose that adamantly. Okay? If you're wondering how 
a dictator rises to power, why didn't good people stop them? It's magic. They use knowledge and power and take advantage of people and manipulate, and there's actually science behind why that happens, dealing with authority. But I also think there is, you know, we can talk about political and economic forces, okay? And, and advertising and commercialization and, man, there's a lot of stuff there we have to ask questions about. And I think Amy might have gone into some of that last time about empire, because empire and magic are, are closely linked. The other part of this that I see in our culture, and I hate it. I, I'm using the word hate because I feel that strongly about it, is our culture is looking for the silver bullet. It's looking for the magic pill. It's looking for the cheat codes that can give me this thing I want without me having to go through the difficult transformative process that makes it real. And I think cheat codes is a good, a, a good metaphor because you play a video game, you want to be really good at that video game, get the cheat codes. You win all day. If you actually want to be good at the game, what do you have to do? Get good at it. Like, it, you got to go through the process. And if somebody got good at a game, again, we're just drawing this metaphor out, somebody got good at a game with cheat codes, and then you take those cheat codes away, they ain't going to be very good. We want to be actually good at things. But seriously, how, how many more new companies do we need saying, here, we're going to fix your diet, just take this, and you're going to be fine. It's like, no, eat healthily for three years straight, and it'll actually fix it. Or you were going to fix your marriage. Here's this one simple thing you have to know. There's no one simple thing that you can do to fix that. It's a process. We got to play the long game. There is no magic pill. And if we try to make the gospel and the kingdom of God a magic pill for others, we are doing not only a disservice to the gospel, we are contradicting it. Ask the people who were persecuted, ask Stephen, is this, is this an easy thing? No. We're not inviting people into like, hey, this is going to be super easy for you. We believe it'll be better. We believe it's this, this is the good way to live. We believe this is good for our world. But it's not easy. And if it's easy, it's not worth doing. Okay? Sorry about that. That was all off notes. Uh, but so, are you seeing the progression? Opposition, this thing's naturally expanding. There's no easy fix for it. There's no cheat codes. It's part of the process. We have to be willing to go through that. All works together. All these will tie together eventually. Next section of text. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, we'll get to that in a minute, they sent Peter and John to them. The two went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for as yet the Spirit had not come upon any of them that had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Not, that is a theological mess right there. We're not going to get into it, but there is a way to make sense of it. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw, remember Simon? Y'all remember Simon? All right, now pay attention to what Simon says. That was good. I'm sorry. I'm... <laughs> now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me all... That's what Simon says. That's so terrible. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Give me also this power so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. 
Why does Simon want that to happen? Easy way. Power. Like this, he goes, ooh, that thing works. How much? How much can I pay you so I can have that thing? Okay, do you see there's, go back to Acts chapter 2. You see there's going to be a little bit of a problem here. Because that's not how this works. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain God's gift with money. You have no part or share in this for your heart is not right before God. <laughs> is, is Peter nice here? No. Okay. Here's something that we also have to confront. It's easy to see something good, even countercultural, and try to engage with it using the previous paradigms that this movement is inherently against. Money gave a certain amount of power to Simon, right? And therefore control. How does he get rich? By healing people and, you know, getting all these people to follow him. And the, what's happening in Acts is they're confronting power. Simon tries to use his power to receive something that is against power. Is the problem making sense? Okay, you see why, the, why Peter gets so mad. You can't use the means of power to participate in something that is inherently against power. Simon misses the point. He's still trying to do the same old thing with this new cool trick that he saw somebody else do. That's all that Simon sees, and he misses it. And so Peter yells at him, and, and it's almost, you could say, why doesn't Simon receive it? Not because, not because Peter kept it from him, but because Simon kept himself from it. Because he was still trying to play that game. Simon, who had great power and control, wants to buy the kingdom. But this isn't something you can buy and sell. It's only something you can share. And there is nothing more urgent to the gospel than learning how to share. When we continue to abide by wealth as power, we oppose the very nature of this movement. Are you getting a feel for this work in progress? And here's the deal. People in churches do this all the time. And I, I honestly can't say that I've seen it here, which is great. But people go like, no, I paid this much money, and this is how I want this to happen. No, Simon. That's not how it works. But are you seeing this progression through Acts? This is the work in progress that we are a part of. It, it starts with fulfill the dream of the world. Do that by sharing, which leads to them also healing in that way that we talked about a few weeks ago, which taking on this identity leads to them being countercultural, which leads to opposition, which is a catalyst for continuing to confront the dominant and invite ourselves and the world further into what is transcendent. That's Acts chapters 1 through 8 in a sentence. That's what we're a part of, okay? Last sermon. That was sermon number three. One more. I don't think I have anything up there. Last part we need to talk about is about Samaria, which we talked about the first week, if, if you all remember that. Um, Samaria is a problem because Israel, the Jewish people at this time, hate Samaria. The disciples go into Samaria and go, uh, hey, Jesus, there's the Samaritans. You want us to call down fire on them? Like it's no big deal. Like that's a normal thing to do. That's how much this animosity is there. Okay, so they go to Samaria. 
And here's what they don't do. Israel's been divided at this point. They see themselves as fulfilling Israel, fulfilling Torah. Okay, that's what Acts 2 is all about. And they don't show up in Samaria and create a Samaritan denomination. The church transcends the distinctions that previously existed. And they see it that their common bond includes everyone. And there is a sort of dependence, even with the Samaritans, that connects them. The divisions and the categories don't work anymore. Again, our divisions and categories might just be that cage that we're trying to domesticate Jesus with, and they'll get blown up if you're not careful. This movement that we're a part of will transcend, and it will include, and it will keep doing that. It's going to go further. It's going to transcend that boundary, and it's going to include all the people in it. And it's going to transcend that boundary, and it's going to include all the people in it. And it's going to keep transcending, and it's going to keep including, because that's the it's the nature of this thing. You can't stay where you are. Things can't stay how they are. And here's the confrontational part. It might take you to uncomfortable places. It might take you to the last places that you wanted to go. And if you are still functioning by former distinctions that you brought into this with you, you might have some whiplash when the kingdom of God is made full in the world. If you have categories, you might find yourself together in the restored creation and realize that that wasn't the way it was meant to be in the first place. There's this picture in Revelation. It's this big party, and the world's restored, and everybody's there, and it's everybody. And what are the chances that you'll be worshiping God for eternity while apologizing to the person next to you? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to devalue you like that. I didn't mean to say that you were out. And here's the deal. Jesus says there's only one thing that will exclude you from the party. You know what it is? Excluding other people from the party. If, you, if you're telling people they can't come in, you yourself aren't actually in because that's not how it works. That's not how this thing works. That's not how it works. When uh, Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor? The Leviticus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And somebody says, who is my neighbor? You know what Jesus says? He tells a story about a Samaritan person. Um, by the way, you'll never hear me refer to that as the good Samaritan, because as I've hopefully pointed out to you, um, that would have been a racial slur. Okay? So, Hey, we have good Samaritan word. That's fine. I don't really care that much. But you got to see how much they hated the Samaritans. And Jesus says, even the Samaritan is your neighbor. So you want to know who your neighbor is? Well, who do you hate? That's your neighbor. Or you know when uh, Israel leaves Egypt? Okay, the Exodus, they're liberated. All of Israel comes out of Egypt. Do you know who else comes out of Egypt? The foremen, the slave drivers, are liberated with them. Can you imagine walking through the sea and having the person who whipped you next to you also receiving this gift? Can you imagine the conversations that would have taken place? And yet that's how this works. That, that's, that's, how, that's how this works, all right? So this will, whatever we're doing here, this work in progress, it will go to uncharted territory. And either we will go with it 
or we will have to work very hard to oppose it. And that might include opposition. That might include you being taken to uncomfortable places. And it might include you seeing that there is no magic pill. And so I want to just ask a couple questions, and we're going to take communion together. And I hope that communion, um, so the song we played before, okay, God, if you can hear me, crash this train. I need to say that to myself, that maybe the train that I've been on is a cage that I've tried to hold this thing in, and I, I need God to break that apart. It doesn't work, Okay. And so as we take communion today, your invitation is, can you see that this thing's expanding and we want to go with it? By taking that bread and dipping it in that cup, you're saying, I'm in. I, I want to keep moving in this direction. And it won't be easy. Wherever you want to go, like for your life, okay, that's not going to be easy. And you don't want it to be. Your marriage needs help? Okay. Enjoy the process, the long, hard, difficult process. Our community has some work to do. There's no quick fix for that. And if we do the hard work, we're likely to get some opposition. And we should celebrate, because that means we're going to keep moving closer to how this should look. The things that need to happen in the world, guys, there's no simple solution to this. The invitation is to go through the process, and the process is shown to us, and that body broken and that blood poured out, and you're invited to receive that, and then you're invited to become that, and that's how this will work. So uh, a couple questions for you to think about as you receive this meal. Are you using any cheat codes? Are you hoping that this is a magic pill? Are you playing by any games of power and control? Are you using your own power to control those around you? I'm going to say something to like just set a standard. Being passive aggressive is a dirty trick. We don't do that here with each other. That is a means of controlling people. Okay? It's a poor communication technique. And I know that's a simple one. Money and that kind of power is even more important, but that's one that we need to pay attention to. Your invitation instead of cheat codes is to be real, to enjoy the process, and play the long game of authentic transformation. Go to the next one. Is this taking you anywhere that you don't want to go? And if it is, embrace it. Here's the deal. If God's taking you somewhere you don't want to go, I'd like to say, theologically, that God's smarter than you. Agree? Disagree? Okay, you all disagree. I, I mean, that, you take that up. That's... Uh, go to the next one. Are you holding on to anything that counters the very nature of God's dream for the world? Are you trying to participate in this like Simon? Or are you trying to participate like Philip? Um, and then uh, the last one for us. How do you view the Samaritans of your life and of the world? Who are the Samaritans today for you? And in two weeks, when we end Exodus chapter 8, it's going to take us even further. So I hope you all join me. But I want you to take a moment now um, and, and take as long as you want in the room, but seriously approach this meal that you're being invited into something that's bigger than you. And it's not a magic pill. It looks like that. It looks like being broken and poured for the healing of the world. 
And if we embark on that journey, the world will never be the same.